Listener Production. Hello, it's Jan Fran here and it is budget morning. Let's get fiscal. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> that is uh, my budget song. Uh, a friend of mine who works in Canberra came up with that one. Shout out to Shalila. Uh, the Treasurer has handed down his budget last night, um, so we're going to be talking a little bit about that in the top of the show. Mm-hmm. The second half of the show, though, Antoinette Latouf is with me. You caught up with Tracy Spicer about yep. her new book all about artificial intelligence. Yeah, and I don't have a terrible song that goes with it. Shame. Um, but this is... This chat was really fascinating but also terrifying because, like, we know AI is here, it's here to stay, but Tracy did this amazing six-year investigation and she uncovers how, like, a lot of the gains we made in equality in recent decades is going to go backwards or is already going backwards thanks to AI. Because AI makes decisions based on patterns of the past, if you're a woman or if you're someone who lives with a disability, you're likely to have your CV thrown out by Mm. the algorithm in your job application because the robot says, well, a lot of you people haven't had jobs in the past, so why should you have jobs in the future? Yeah, so it's a bit of a buy Felicia for any gains made for women. Oh, see, that's my bad joke. And people of colour. And she also makes the case that we can't stay silent and that we really need to put pressure on governments and regulators. Um because staying silent could mean the end of humanity. Oh, my God. That's that's a very, very big call. Mm-hmm. But I look forward to um, hearing that discussion. It sounds very interesting. I'm someone who just thinks that AI is like every time someone says that, I just think, oh, is that like Mal from Captain Planet? Only yes. old millennials <laughs> will understand that joke. It's, it's very, very funny. Uh, that's coming up a little bit later in our show. But first, as promised, we are going to unpack all things budget from last night. It is Wednesday the 10th of May. A nearly $15 billion cost of living relief package has dominated this year's federal budget. The budget we present to the Australian people tonight provides cost of living relief that is responsible and affordable and prioritises those most in need. That's Treasurer Jim Chalmers, who obviously presented the budget to Parliament And the budget is also expected to return a surplus of $4.2 billion. And Jan, that's the first time the budget's been back in the black in 15 years. And we're going to unpack why and how all of that's happening in just a tick. And why that's not like amazing. So we're going to pull that back a little bit. But um, I just want to go firstly just to some of the promises. So Mm -hmm. we've got... um, more than 5 million households getting $500 off their energy bills. There's also a um, billion dollars that are going to help homes become more energy efficient. So, you know, if you've got um, things like solar, insulation, that kind of thing. This one's, uh, I think, going to benefit a lot of people. $3.5 billion um, going towards tripling of the bulk billing incentive. So basically what that means is that you will be able to see more doctors who will bulk bill uh, youth allowance, Oz study, and JobKeeper payments are going to raise by twenty bucks a week, forty bucks a fortnight. So here's the treasurer. He's defended his decision not to increase that job seeker to ninety percent of the pension rate. They had an economic committee. The economic committee recommended they increase JobKeeper by a whole lot more mm-hmm. than what they've done. The treasurer is like, mm, no, we're only going to increase it a little bit. Here's why. Well, we have to strike a series of fine balances and we understand that there will be people who are saying $40 a fortnight is not enough. There'll be some who'll be saying it's too much. That's one thing. The other thing that they've promised is rental assistance. Um, Obviously, we're in the middle of a rental crisis. Lots of people feeling the pinch there. So uh, rental assistance expected to lift by 15%. And what was always a big concern and needed to be this like delicate 
balancing act is managing inflation. I guess we need spending and people in need need more support, but how do we do that without blowing out inflation? So critics say that this budget could lead to more inflationary pressure, which could lead to RBA hiking interest rates even more. Adding fuel to the fire. The problem with the budget is it's dealing with the symptoms, not the source of the problem, which is excessive spending, and it's adding $185 billion of spending. That's Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor there. And the Treasurer responded uh, with a bit of a, nah, mate, you're wrong. By taking seriously this inflation challenge, big investments in the supply side of the economy, responsible economic management, banking 82% of the upward revision to revenue, and also making sure that our cost of living package is delivered over time in the most responsible way. So one of the things that lots of people were talking about, Jan, um, in the lead up to the budget was JobSeeker. And I think it's important to note that, yes, they had that expert panel that recommended it becomes 90% of the aged pension. And even ScoMo raised it um, when he was the Prime Minister to $50 a fortnight. Uh, What uh, the government is proposing, a $40 a fortnight raise, is a hell of a lot lower than what Mm. its own committee suggested, which would have been $190 a fortnight. Raise. Yeah, that doesn't even begin to touch the surface, does it? And he was um, he he was interviewed by the ABC immediately after he gave his budget speech uh, on the floor of the House of Reps. And look, you know, the, he was sort of going back and forth with David Spears, and you yeah. know how they do. Well, David, well, this, well, that, and it's like at the end of the day, you made a decision around yeah. costs, and you basically said you can't afford to raise JobKeeper. Uh, more than $40 a fortnight, which if we're looking at the amount of money that we're spending on submarines and the potential for that to blow out. So it's just like, so all of those people, um, you know, enjoy living in, you know, enjoy living below the poverty line for a little bit longer. What this budget feels like to me is it feels like uh, Jim Chalmers saying, look, we're going to go through a bit of a rough patch. Mm. Uh, Let's just try and get through the next few years, a bit of a transitionary budget. Mm. There was some applause in the House when I think when he said that Labor had a majority women, that got a a big round of applause. That was a big one. And also the surplus got a big round of applause. The surplus. Right. I did Mm -hmm. say we're going to talk about this because he's really been touting this surplus, hasn't he? He's like, well, we're back in the black. Four billion dollars. Aren't we great? And the first time in 15 years, it sounds like a great thing. And the first time in 15 years. And the coalition tried to do it and Mm. they were all about the surplus and they had problems doing it and now Labor's done it and isn't that great. The surplus is really only um, forecast to last a year. We're yep. going to go back into deficit yeah. the year after next. So, you know, it's a short-lived yeah, it's, situation. It's more of a tiny and confused clap rather than a round of applause, I reckon, because it is largely due to inflation and commodity prices that increased thanks to the war. You know, I saw some commentary going, we can thank Vladimir Putin um, for our budget surplus. But, you know, the government really didn't do anything magnificent to get that surplus and it's going to be gone very soon. Anything else in the budget stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's interesting that there's going to be a bit of a war on vaping um, and something else I love to do because this is what cool people do on Tuesday nights. I pay a bit of like a buzzword bingo when it comes to all the, the language in the budget. Uh, and By yourself? By myself. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's something I recommend very cool people do. Um, and some of the words that popped out, which just kept being said again and again, was like struggling, responsible, pressure, and my favourite, like under the pump. So this was like like deliberately all the words to go, we feel your pain. Another big takeaway, and this is probably my most politically astute observation, is like the people 
in the gallery watching who are like emphatically nodding for 30 minutes. So that is some serious neck muscle power. Like I want to know who their Cairo is. It takes a lot of energy to sustain that nod for 30 I minutes. I think about the people who have to sit directly behind yeah. the, you know, people so, who give long speeches in Parliament. So I think Anne Ali was one who I noticed. Uh, the Prime Minister was sitting behind the Treasurer. And it's like you kind of have to, like, look very engaged and very interested the whole time. And you've got to nod, like, a shit tonne. Yeah. So, yeah, that's probably one of my biggest takeaways from this budget. (laughs) He got a standing ovation and then the coalition was like, all right, see ya, and then they all just, like, (laughs) left the chamber. We're going to vape. (laughs) Immediately, yeah. All right, let's hit some of the other big stories of the day. Donald Trump has been found liable for the sexual abuse of advice columnist E. Jean Carroll, as well as defaming her by a federal jury. Um, That's just unfolding right now in New York City. Carroll says she was sexually abused um, in the 1990s in a dressing room. Um, She's been awarded $5 million US in damages. Um, And the unanimous verdict came after three hours of deliberation, although um, the jury didn't find him guilty of rape. This is huge, Mm. first of all. Um, because it's the first time that a US president has been found liable of sexual assault. Now, we should say this is a civil trial. It's not a criminal trial. He has not been found guilty on criminal charges. A civil court is very different. Um, They have a kind of a a different measure Mm. of uh, whether you're liable or not. It's called like they have to find you liable by a preponderance of evidence, whereas in a criminal court they have to find you guilty or innocent beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So they're, they're the big differences. And, you know, there have been dozens of women that have accused Trump of sexual misconduct over the years. He's always denied the allegations. This is the first time that a claim like that has been tested before a jury and now we've seen this outcome. So it's pretty big and I imagine the story will unfold over the next few hours and days. And he can still run for president. It's well, wild. I'm, it's, hey, America, you know, I don't live there and that's great for me. <laughs> And we've also been telling you about weight loss giant Jenny Craig, um, how that folded in the US, and it's now in dire straits here. Yeah, so uh, what's happened is the company's been placed into voluntary administration. It's not expected to shed staff at the moment, but we were also told that it was expected to be fine last Mm. week after its US parent company closed, and it's not fine. So we don't really know uh, what the situation there is. We just know that the Australian and, and NZ side of the business is kind of going to undergo a review and a restructure and I think they're going to try and sell it. So I, if you're a customer of Jenny Craig and you're listening to this, I guess hang tight for some developments. That's me. That's me done. I'm out of here. You're up next, Antoinette with Tracy Spicer. Tracy Spicer is a Walkley Award-winning journalist, but she's so much more than that. She spent a huge chunk of her career advocating for women and taking on powerful men and institutions. So yes, she's smart and brave, but also funny. And you need a heavy dose of humour and belly laughs to get through the really confronting stuff in her latest book, Man Made, How the Bias of the Past is Being Built into the Future. And it's all about AI, And not just the usual, oh, it's going to take all of our jobs. More along the lines of, it's going to ruin our lives and women and other minorities are on the chopping board first. 
And Tracy spent six years writing this book. Tracy, thanks so much for your time. Firstly, why did you feel compelled to write this book? Because yes, you're a journalist and we are naturally curious, but you're you're not a woman working in STEM. No, I'm merely a journalist, not a technologist. But when my son turned around six or seven years ago at the age of 11 and said, Mum, I want a robot slave, after watching an episode of South Park where Cartman got an Alexa, it was a light bulb moment as a feminist and a journalist because I realised that the bias of the past where women are viewed as servile is being built into the machines that will run our futures. And I thought, as a journalist, I can do the research, interview the academics and translate that into something that's understandable for everybody. And I want to talk about Siri and Alexa, who you refer to as virtual female slaves, because, I mean, that's just one really obvious way in which AI is gendered. That's exactly right. And there are many other ways as well, because once I realised that in our homes and offices, chatbots are being voiced as females if they're there to serve us, but in the business and finance sector, chatbots are voiced by males. So that's a really Mm. obvious way of how the stereotypes of the past are being built to the future. Some less obvious ways involve racism and ableism as well. For example, there are automated soap dispensers in Marriott hotels around the world that only work for white hands. And a Nigerian tech worker alerted the world to this. And that happens because we think of big tech as being large corporations, Mm. but the individual innovations are made by very small groups of three or four usually white American men, and they test out the technology on themselves. So they build their own biases, their own personas into these innovations, and that means a lot of people around the world can't use them. And that's problematic if it's a soap dispenser, but believe it or not, that same technology is being built into self-driving cars. So the cars will come to a pedestrian crossing, and if it's a white person, the car will stop. If it's a person of colour, the car will not. So I know, right? And it seems sort of minor when you're talking about tech bots or uh, chat bots or soap dispensers, but when it comes to self-driving cars, cars or hospitals or war zones, this is a matter of life and death. My reaction there was to laugh, but it's it's horrific, really, the different ways in the different industries where this will play out and the, and the harm that it will do. Yeah, that's right. And look, I wrote my book as a humorous comedy book mm. because these are existential threats. And I don't think people will finish a book like this if the reality sinks in too much. So that's why I think you're appro- it was a really appropriate response <laughs> for you to laugh because if we don't laugh, we're going to cry. And do you think most people truly understand just how much AI is already invading every day of our lives? Because a lot of the kind of the talk is as though this Armageddon is coming and it's yet to come. You argue it's well and truly here. Oh yeah, this is not a book about the future. This is a book about the present. From the moment we wake up in the morning to the moment we go to bed at night, we are marinating in a source of bigoted artificial intelligence. Every time we send an email, every time we do a search on our computer through Google, every time we order our shopping online and we're asked for replacements for items, AI is behind all of that. Mm. When we get into a smart elevator, when we drive our cars, when we 
apply for a job, and this is a really classic example, we don't realise how often AI is used when we're applying for a job or a home loan, but these algorithms are behind those decisions. And because AI makes decisions based on patterns of the past, if you're a woman or if you're someone who lives with a disability, you're likely to have your CV thrown out by mm. the algorithm in your job application because the robot says, well, a lot of you people haven't had jobs in the past, so why should you have jobs in the future? And that's a problem. We think about machine learning as something of the future, mm. but it's actually replicating the patterns of the past. And you've covered a lot of different ways AI is harming us in, in various industries from you know, job recruitment in HR, medicine, the armed forces, policing. Is there a particular industry you think is most in danger or most destructive? Oh, you'd have to say war zones. You know, if you think about this bias being embedded in technology for automated soap dispensers and self-driving cars, imagine how the bots will view people in war zones. And this happens in two ways. Uh, one way is actually very bad for men because it will learn from history that the people who die in war zones are predominantly men and so the robots will seek out male civilians and potentially kill them. But in search and rescue missions, the bots won't recognise women and particularly women who have their faces partially covered. And therefore, in search and rescue missions, they might be left behind women and children. So this isn't just something that affects one particular part of society. Mm. People will die and be targeted regardless of their race, their gender, their ability. It just depends on what kind of situation they're in, what kind of context. So I guess we're outsourcing decision-making to really flawed machines and there's no regulation or legislation that's going to stop this happening. So moving forward now, can we use data to remove unconscious bias or has the machine learning and algorithmic horse, so to speak, already bolted? <laughs> we can use the technology that is crueling society to improve society, but there's got to be the will. Mm. And the problem is the tech giants are sitting on huge cash mountains, as one of the people I interviewed said. I thought that was such a wonderful mm -hmm. visualisation. And while they're making so much money, mm. ethics is a lower order issue and it will cost them money to fix this and they don't want to spend the money to do that. They want to spend the money making better bots to separate you from your cash, right? They don't want to spend the money on making society a better place. They're not philanthropists. They're certainly not working in charities. So we need a societal movement to force the tech giants to take action to make the world a better place. They're not going to do it off their own bats. But there's a lot of things we can do in our own homes. We can change Siri or Alexa to a male voice I instead have, of a female I voice. I have done that. I've made it a British male and that's my little like patriarchy kick to the digital balls. I love that <laughs> and also best line ever. Thank you. And we could even, you know, in our workplaces, if automated decision-making is happening for job applications, we can say, has there been an audit on this software? Because we need more audits in the same way as we have gender pay audits these days. We need to have technology audits on decision-making. But of course, there's also a role for legislation and are governments doing enough? No, governments are so behind the times. I mean, they're frightened of 
I suppose, restricting some of the great positives mm. that society can get from the advances in artificial intelligence, because there are some wonderful things that can be done. But because of that, they're not putting any regulation or legislation in place. A lot of people in politics are older. They're not necessarily tech savvy and therefore they don't understand what's happening. So that's the other reason. There's ignorance. There's inertia. <laughs> there's, there's also a lack of There's will. also a whole bunch of old white blokes calling the shots, which are similar to the people calling the shots in technology. Precisely. And a lot of people don't want to see these changes happening in the future because they like what's happened in the past. They're comfortable. When they see themselves mirrored politics and technology, they don't want to disrupt that because they want to retain their power. There's also been a push for an AI commissioner, which I believe if Australia was to get it would be in the first in the world. Would you support something like this? Oh, 100%. The wonderful former Human Rights Commissioner, Ed Santo, did a three-year world-first report on ethics in technology, and he's called for Australia to lead the way with an AI safety commissioner. And I think it's a really sensible solution because what he says is innovation is great, but we need what's called a regulatory sandbox where you get an innovation, you test it out in a small group, you make sure it's not going to kill anybody before you unleash it on the general public. Now, that just seems to me to be a Mm. common sense solution. When we talk about technology and AI in particular, it's important, and you point out, that most of it's being built by a small gaggle of middle-class white men based in Silicon Valley. Another interesting thing you raise is techno-racism. It sounds like something I definitely don't want to be dancing to. Uh, Can you explain what techno-racism is? Yeah, techno-racism is where bigotry is being embedded in the machines through technology. And I want everyone to follow the work of Dr Joy Bulamwini of the Algorithmic Justice League because she raised this idea when she tried to create something called an Aspire mask, which is you can hold your phone up to your face and someone you admire, their face is projected onto yours effectively. And in her case, she loves Serena Williams. Well, She works at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She created this incredible tech, but when she held it up in front of her own face, it didn't work. It only worked when she put a white mask on. And that made her realise that a lot of these algorithms only recognise white faces. And she was horrified as a woman who works in technology. So that is techno-racism. And it's also where you apply for a home loan and you don't get it because you're a person of colour. Now, I did some deep research on this in America, and the rates of what's called black home ownership have fallen through the floor since algorithms have started to be used to decide who gets a home loan. And that's not a coincidence. So there are two examples of Mm. of techno-racism, of how the bigotry and bias of the past is being built into the future. Tracy Spicer, journalist and author of Man Made, how the bias of the past is being built into the future, and that book is out today. There was one paragraph in the book that I just can't stop thinking about, and it says, Make no mistake, there's a clear and present danger that we're heading towards a dystopian future marked by authoritarian governments, mass unemployment and poverty and digitally entrenched injustice. And to use Tracy's way with words, f*** me. This shit is scary. Listener.